This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. All right. Take two, Mogab. Take two. Uh, Yeah. Why don't you tell the peeps? Tell the peeps how I forgot to set my mic correctly and... Because you're so hopped up on Celsius? (laughs) Last time I had two Diet Cokes and a monster and wasn't thinking to drink. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. We recorded this episode already last Monday. It's now Saturday. We're recording again because I screwed up. (laughs) That's okay. We're all about acceptance here. (laughs) But as we're giving out forgiveness, which is different than the blame buffet, I'm dishing out forgiveness. I will not forgive the two people, and you know who you are, that swayed the housekeeping (laughs) poll because I lost by two votes. And the two of you, you know who you are. I will accept apologies in the form of Starbucks payment or any other thing you want to do to make it up to me. The end. (laughs) Uh, And speaking of that, I have some housekeeping items. Oh, well, go ahead. Winner, winner. Chicken dinner. (laughs) Go on. Uh, First of all, Mogab, we got merch. Merch. Uh, We got some super cute merch. We got some I'm appalled by everything designs. If you want to, I still am. Let everybody know that we got some answer for your crimes, a couple different answer for your crimes designs, and that's all at truecrimecreepersmerch.com. Also, we got big news. We do. I feel like I should know about the big news before the peeps and creeps. Yeah, this is my first time telling you this. Mogab doesn't even know. We're launching a Patreon. Oh no, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, you did. Yeah, you. We've that. told. Yeah. We've told people. Okay, good. Yes, I'm here. I work here. Everybody. <laughs> You know what the best part about a Patreon is, for the people that don't know? What? It's like you get all of our normal content, Mm -hmm. and then you just go to this app or site, and you get all of this bonus content that other people don't get. I mean, that's the whole point. It's exclusive, just for the cool kids. So that will be happening in August. More details to come. And against Kristen's will, I'll probably add cute photos of my dog. (laughs) And one more thing before we get on to this week's episode. I want to introduce you to a new podcast that I think you might like. It's called Coffee and Cases. And so we're going to play a little promo here that will introduce you to that podcast. Greetings from the Bluegrass State. That's Kentucky, if y'all didn't know. 
We want to tell you about the hottest new podcast on the block, Coffee and Cases. If you fancy yourself an at-home detective, if you find yourself yelling at the TV during that new true crime documentary, then you, my friend, are a certified sleuth hound. Just like us. On Coffee and Cases podcast, you'll hear about the missing, the murdered, and the unsolved. But the cases you've rarely, if ever, heard about. All from the perspective of two teacher friends, rule followers, and self-proclaimed scaredy cats. Join me, Allison, and me, Maggie, each week as we take on cases that are often overlooked but are screaming for justice. Finally, a true crime podcast where you don't have to monitor the foul language. Coffee and Cases is a true crime guilty pleasure that you don't actually have to feel guilty about. Check out Coffee and Cases every Thursday for a new episode on your favorite podcasting app. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Creepers. All right. I've heard this one, though. <laughs> Take two. Take Round two. two. <laughs> but you don't remember any of it, which is I fantastic. know. I was just about to say, I shouldn't have even said that because I have no idea what we're talking about. Shout out to my god sister. Before we start. Big shout out to my god sister, Natalie, who's the one who told me about this case. She said she'd seen an episode of 2020 on it. And when she told me about it, it just had everything I love in a case. And I knew I had to look into it. Today, I'm going to tell you about the murder of Angie Dodge. Another Angie? Another Angie. We had Angela Samoda. We had Angela Diaz. Now we got Angie Dodge. Angie D. I'm not sure if I think her name is Angie, though. They never called her Angela. Angie lived in Idaho Falls, Idaho. It's a small town with a population right around 65,000, but it's still the second largest city in Idaho behind Boise. (laughs) Small cities in Idaho. Yeah. It's right on Snake River, which is a beautiful river running through the city. And the waterfalls there are the big attraction. It's a very safe place to live. And like most small towns, violent crime is really rare. Until it's not, which is why we're here. Which is why the city of Idaho Falls was so horrified by the events of June 13, 1996. 
That morning at a little beauty supply store in town, some of the workers were getting worried about their coworker, Angie Dodge. She was supposed to work the shift that morning, but it was after 10 and she still hadn't shown up. And that wasn't like Angie, enough that two of her coworkers decided to stop by her apartment and check on her. Angie was 18 years old, and she'd just graduated high school in May. She'd rented an upstairs apartment in a two-story house that had been converted into apartments in one of the older neighborhoods in Idaho Falls. And she'd only been there three weeks at this point. Dang it. What? Wait, before you describe her, Uh we skipped my segment of the podcast where I tell you who I'm picturing at the beauty supply store. Of course. I forget her name, but I'm picturing the beautician nail tech from Legally Blonde. Oh, burnt Paulette, pa, uh, Paulette, Paulette, Jennifer, Jennifer Coolidge. It's Jennifer Coolidge. I'm taking the dog. Dumbass. <laughs> yeah, that's that <laughs> picture. I'm taking the dog. Dumbass. I just watched a Cinderella story the other night. You know, she plays yes. the evil stepmother. She goes, it's the Botox. I can't show emotion for another hour and a half. <laughs> you sound just like her. Ooh, I just cackled like my mother. <laughs> All right, back to the story. Her coworkers got to her apartment around 11 a.m. and the door was unlocked when they arrived. They walk into the apartment and into the largest bedroom where they found a nightmare. Angie had been raped and murdered and was laying on her back on the floor next to a mattress. Her sweatpants were pulled down to her knees. Her shirt was lifted, exposing a cut on her breast. There were stab wounds. Her throat had been cut. And there was so much blood. It was everywhere. It was on the walls. It was even covering a pile of stuffed animals she had in the corner. Police arrived at the scene around 11.15, and they got to work collecting evidence and processing the scene. Right away, they could see that the killer had left behind pieces of himself. Semen could be seen clearly all over Angie. They found pubic hair. They collected blood samples. I know. All they'd have to do is find the person that matched the DNA. Well, he sounds like an idiot because... They're all idiots. I I know. (laughs) Just leaving... Dumbass. Dumbass. (laughs) Angie's family was notified, and it was a call no mother ever wants to get. Angie was the youngest of four children to parents Carol and Jack Dodge, and she was their only daughter. She'd been looking into going to Idaho State University in the fall, and she was loud, outgoing. She was known for sticking her foot out the window while she drove around in the car everyone called the boat because it was so big. She was also someone who had been bullied when she was younger. She was tall and bigger than the other girls. Not if she's able to drive around with her foot out the window. (laughs) Seems pretty flexible to me. Yeah. Well, you can be tall and bigger and still put that foot behind your head, okay? That's right, girl. Get it. (laughs) And she was picked on because of it, because kids can suck. They do suck. But it turned her into the type of person that if she saw someone get bullied, she would stand up for them. But she wasn't like this tough person. She was described as joyful and pleasant and extremely intelligent. Neither of her parents would ever recover from the loss, but her mother, Carol especially, was determined to find out who had done this. The police were hoping for an open and shut case. Uh, Aren't they always? (laughs) They had so much of the killer's DNA. The expectation was that they'd be able to solve the crime pretty quickly. But just like in the Brooke Baker case that we did a couple of weeks ago, DNA only makes it easy if you can find the person that matches. They asked for DNA from every single person that they interviewed, and by the time they'd gone through all the obvious suspects, They'd collected over a hundred samples. 
Not a single one matched. And at this point, there was just no obvious way of knowing who did it. Well, and thanks to you, I know now it's not just like you slide a little like plate of DNA into some system and it's like, ding, ding, ding. Right, in a database and it just pops up, ding, 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 you get the DNA. So six months went by. No arrest had been made. They were completely out of leads. Everyone in the community was filled with anxiety. A murderer was on the loose and no one knew who it was. In a small town, that's got to feel spooky. For sure. The police were under a lot of pressure to solve the crime quickly to help the community heal. You know what I think about that. (laughs) Yeah. It got to a point where they were more motivated to make everyone feel better than to solve the case. And that's not a good place for investigators to be. Pressures on police can lead to questionable conduct, especially when they've run out of leads. And I think there's like a sweet spot of like you want the investigators to do their job, to work hard, to work diligently and and try to solve a case. But Mm -hmm. you don't want them to feel like if they don't solve it, the world is going to end. Right. Or they're going to lose their jobs or something because they can't solve it. That's how we get the wrong people locked up. Yeah. But it makes everybody feel better. So, you know. But then – In January 1997, about seven months after the murder, police get what they think is their big break in the case. They find out that in Nevada, a friend of Angie's named Benjamin Hobbs had been arrested for raping a woman at knife point. It was so similar to Angie's case that as soon as they got this information, they moved immediately, thinking, this is it. This has to be our guy. Right. Angie had a huge circle of friends. She was a social butterfly and was in a bunch of different friend groups. But she spent the most time hanging out at Snake River with a group of friends that called themselves the River Rats. (laughs) Been there, done that. Oh, yeah. And Ben was one of the River Rats. He wasn't just an acquaintance of Angie's. He'd been in the funeral party. They were close. And it's not unusual for the killer to be at the funeral. I will quit right now if this man was a pallbearer and killed her. I will literally quit this podcast. (laughs) Oh, you're not allowed to quit. I'm going to need to get that in writing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I have thought about it. I'm like, (laughs) I have some control here. (laughs) Yeah, you really do. So investigators drove down to Nevada to interview Ben. Right away, Ben denied having anything to do with the murder. He even asked police if Angie was raped and said if she was, his DNA would prove right there that it wasn't him. He didn't do it. He gave police his DNA. They took it, and police went back to Idaho Falls. While they waited for the DNA to come back, they started looking into Ben's close circle of friends. They wanted to try to build a case against him, because also, unlike Law & Order and Criminal Minds, you don't get the DNA back in two hours. (laughs) It takes a really long time. So they want to start building a case against them, because they're sure this is our guy. They'd already interviewed most of his friends back in the initial investigation because they were friends with Angie. But now they start looking a little harder. They bring in a guy named Chris Tapp, who was 20 years old and a close friend of Ben's. Chris was a high school dropout who did a lot of couch surfing, smoked a lot of weed, didn't Mm -hmm. really work. One of the lead detectives used to be a school resource officer at the high school that Chris went to. So he was familiar with Chris and he was someone that Chris trusted. At his first interview, Chris denied having to do anything with the murder. He says he was nowhere near Angie's place that night, and he doesn't know anything about it. At first, they're only interested in Chris as a way to get to Ben, who they were pretty sure had been the one to rape and murder Angie, 
But somewhere during this first interview, they get the idea that Chris had more to do with this than he was letting on, and their focus shifted. They began a series of interrogations and polygraph sessions that lasted a total of 60 hours. Mm. And over the course of those 60 hours, Chris's story starts to change. His second interview was three days after the first, and this time he told police that it was Ben that had killed Angie and that he'd asked Chris to give him an alibi. Police were excited. They had Ben, and now they had Chris, too. Where's Ben's DNA? Still spinning through that machine. It's the 90s. Everything moving at a snail's pace. (laughs) Nothing fast in the 90s. That's right. And Chris was cooperating. This whole thing would be over soon. Investigators scheduled another interview with Chris for the next day, but his parents got him a lawyer, so he didn't show up for that scheduled interview. This made the police a little angry. (laughs) When he didn't show up, they went to his house, where his mother said he'd come in two days on January 13th with his attorney. And so they decided they didn't want to wait until the 13th to talk to him. I just don't feel like that's not cooperating. Getting a lawyer, it does make it harder for them to do their investigation. They can't talk to you without the lawyer present. It makes it more difficult. It's good for you. Get a lawyer. You should piss the police off. You should still get a lawyer. So they returned to his house with an arrest warrant and charged him as an accessory to a felony. Ooh. You know, that's interesting. Let's remember that he was charged as an accessory to a felony. Charge, I'm writing it down. That's going to be interesting when we get to trial. The next interrogation was a few days after his arrest, and Chris went through his story again about how Ben had killed Angie. One of the detectives tells him, the impression I get is you were downstairs waiting for him. And Chris said, maybe I was there. I don't know. The investigators can tell they're almost there. Just a little more and he would crack wide open. He changed his story, which means he must be hiding something even bigger. They know Chris wasn't the one to rape and murder Angie, and that's the person they really want. So the prosecutor's office decide they're willing to make a deal with Chris. They give him an immunity agreement. If Chris agrees to be truthful with them and tell them who killed Angie, they will only charge him with aiding and abetting an aggravated battery, which he'd be allowed to plead guilty to. How did they know it wasn't him? How did they know it wasn't Chris? Yeah, they already got that DNA back. Because they're sure that it was Ben because of this crime that he committed in Nevada. But, like, they're not, though. You know? Like, they're not sure, right? They are sure. They are so sure. Until a little bit. Until three sentences later from right now. (laughs) (laughs) His sentence would be pretty light for what he'd admitted to doing. And Chris signed the agreement. Investigators were thrilled. To them, it meant they'd have a solution that would bring peace back to their community. But a huge blow to their case comes when they get the DNA back, and neither Chris nor Ben are a match. Booyah, I told you. (laughs) I've been here a minute. Okay, but instead of saying, okay, maybe we're back at square one. It's not these guys. Let's start over. Let's try again. They think, Okay, there must have been a third guy at the scene that Chris hasn't told us about. And it must have been that third guy who was the only one who left all his DNA around. So we know Chris was there. We know Ben was there. Chris hasn't told us about this third guy, but it's him that we're looking for. Even though Chris already told us it was Ben that raped Angie, so already his statement isn't matching. 
But they go back to Chris, and he gives them the name of another friend of his, Jeremy Sargis. Chris, stop it, dude. You are fake remembering things. <laughs> but Jeremy knows what Chris didn't, that the first line in the Miranda rights is there for a reason. You have the right to remain silent. And Jeremy exercised that right. He spoke to police just enough to tell them where he'd been that night and nothing else. And that reminds me, Chris has an attorney. Where is his attorney during <laughs> yeah. these interviews? His attorney's just not caring. He's like tossing out names. Yeah, and, like... and he's signing immunity agreements. Oh, no. And then the DNA test on Jeremy comes back. And lo and behold, not a match. On top of that, Jeremy had an alibi that checked out. So the prosecutors are pissed. And they voided the immunity agreements because they said that Chris had lied. A few days later, they took Chris to the crime scene and his story changed once again. Now oh it was he that had held Angie down while Ben killed her. He said the DNA belonged to a friend of Ben's named Mike, whom Chris didn't know. To watch Chris Tapp's interrogations and see it evolve from I wasn't there to maybe I was there to absolutely I was there, but I was waiting downstairs to actually I was there. I was holding her down. It's pretty disturbing. Yeah. On January 30th, Chris took his fifth polygraph test. During the questioning, police told him that he could possibly get a more lenient sentence if he had been in fear of his life after witnessing the attack on Angie. Eventually, Chris said that he was the one who cut Angie across the breast because Ben threatened to kill him if he didn't join in. They asked how many times he cut her, and Chris said just once. They asked if she said anything during the whole attack, and he said she asked for help. Mm. The polygrapher told him he passed the test, but he would note on his report that Chris showed deception when he talked about participating in the crime. Yeah, what does really pass-fail on those things? Like, If you're telling the truth. And he was lying when he said he was involved. Right, so he did not pass. <laughs> right. <sighs> on February 3rd, 1997, even though none of the DNA matched Chris, he was charged. What was he charged with before initially? Accessory to a felony. Well, now he's charged with first-degree murder, rape, Wait. and use of a deadly weapon in the commission of a felony, which the use of a deadly weapon part is tacked on to get you a longer sentence. Yeah, that's worse, right? <laughs> right. Even though his <laughs> DNA proved he didn't rape her, he was charged with rape. Oh, my God. Ben Hobbs was convicted of the assault in Nevada, the one where he raped the woman at knife point. But he was never charged in Angie's death because he never confessed, the DNA didn't match, and they had nothing else on him. They'd initially charged Jeremy Sargis as an accessory, but those charges were dismissed. And it's mind-blowing to me that you don't have to have any actual evidence to charge someone like that. And like with Jeremy, they had nothing on him, nothing, except for Chris said it was that guy. And they charged him. But then, of course, the charges were dismissed. That still shocks you? It does. Aren't you supposed to have evidence to get a arrest warrant to charge? Like, uh, Yes. I guess it's not mind-blowing. It's terrifying. Right, yeah. And it's also mind-blowing slash terrifying 
that they were able to charge Chris with first-degree rape and murder and not as an accessory, like they did before, which I had forgotten about until we redid this. And I realized, wait a second, they charged him originally as an accessory. Then they upped it when he gave them nothing. Yeah, which makes no sense to me. Chris's trial started on May 12th, 1998. Carol Dodge, Angie's mother, was there every single day. She was a very visible presence, and she wanted Chris to pay. She wanted him to get the death penalty. She wanted him to suffer the way that Angie had. And the argument used against Chris at trial was simple. Innocent people don't confess to crimes they didn't commit. Obviously. Well, we know that's not true. And here's the thing. I'll get into more details about it later, but these interrogations were bad. Terrible, Yeah, there were 60 hours of them. (laughs) There are a lot of pretty obvious signs of a false confession, and if you look at enough interrogations that end in proven false confessions, you see patterns that you don't see in a genuine confession, and those patterns are all over Chris's confessions. The questioning by police is so suggestive, and they're constantly correcting him on details of the crime. They're just giving him all the information. In the end, they got five different confessions from Chris. And each one precisely fit the detective's theory of the murder at the time that they were given. As the detectives learned new information and their theory changed and shifted, they got Chris to say he'd done something different, something that fit their evolving theory. Right. But juries, actually, most people in general, don't understand the concept of a false confession. And I get that. It's really hard to understand why anybody that wasn't like craving attention or something like that, I get. Why Mm -hmm. anybody would go in and say they did something that they didn't do. And with some people, it doesn't matter how much evidence you show them that it happens. They will never believe someone would confess to something that they didn't do. Mm -hmm. And this all reminds me so much of the Austin Yogurt Shop case we did early on, like episode 11. And in that case, you had four boys accused of a crime, two confessed and two didn't. And the only evidence they had was the confession. So the only ones that went to trial were the two that confessed, Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen. But they were false confessions. And we talked a lot in that episode about all the different reasons someone might confess to a crime they didn't do. Because it's true. It's hard to believe that anyone would do that. If he said he did it, he did it. So if you're interested in all the reasons someone might falsely confess, I would love to point you to that episode. And maybe I'll put like a bullet point up on the IG or something. Yeah. Because it's a lot to go into again, but it is really interesting. And there are a lot of actual proven, like people have studied this. False confessions happen. Chris's attorneys tried to get the tapes of his interrogations thrown out, saying that the confession was coerced. But the judge allowed almost all of the tapes into evidence. And I honestly can't believe a judge watched these tapes and didn't see everything wrong with them. They're terrible. And also I wonder, because they said the judge allowed almost all of the tapes into evidence, he couldn't have meant the polygraph, right? Because that's inadmissible. Or are just the results inadmissible, but you could still show... So watch it? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, like how bad did something have to be if he let all of them in but some, and they right. were all terrible? <laughs> right. You. It's also frustrating, too, because you know, like a judge knows, they have to know, that false confessions happen. So, like, to see those tapes, and I don't know. Maybe judge in small-town Idaho doesn't know. (laughs) The confession tapes took up most of the trial. 
Because they didn't have any other evidence. Yeah, I was going to say, it was the whole trial. (laughs) In the first interviews with Chris, it was really clear that police were focused on Ben as the suspect, and they were trying to get Chris to implicate him. They lied to him. They told him that Ben had already said Chris was there at the scene. (gasps) Yeah. Remember, they can lie to you. Yeah, they can lie and say your DNA is there. Mm -hmm. That someone else said that you were there. All of that. Lies. Martha Puebla. Yeah. Yeah. But they told him that they could help him if he cooperated. And Chris said he would help if he could, but he didn't know anything. He said he was just a scared little man. Oh. As the tapes went on, the pressure from police steadily increased until he eventually said he was holding Angie down while Ben and this third man raped and stabbed her. And then Ben forced him to slash her breast. Sounds real helpful, police. One thing interrogators often do that can lead to a false confession is they attack a suspect's confidence in their own memory. Chris kept saying, if I was there, I'd remember it, wouldn't I? And detectives told him that if he was involved in something this horrific, he would definitely have suppressed it, and it would be in his subconscious. Chris started to doubt his own memories. And we saw the same thing happen to Michael Scott in the yogurt shop case. At trial, the detectives repeatedly said that Chris gave details of the crime voluntarily, and that proves that he was there and involved. For example, one detective testified that Chris knew what Angie was wearing before he was shown the crime scene photos, but a later examination of all the polygraph and confession videos showed that Chris didn't mention the clothing until after he saw the photos. Yeah. Pretty much the only other evidence presented at trial was the testimony of a woman named Destiny Osborne, who was 18 at the time. She said she was at a party a few days after Angie was killed, and she overheard Chris and Ben talking about the crime. Destiny said that she heard Ben say that he had killed Angie because she owed him money for meth, but Chris had told police that Angie didn't do drugs, which contradicted Destiny's story. On May 28, 1998, the jury read their verdict. Guilty on all three charges. What? Yeah. Says who? Says the 12 members of this jury. Chris said when the verdict was read, he just felt overwhelmingly sad. Let's remember that he was just convicted of rape when his DNA didn't match the rapist's DNA. Chris said when the verdict was read, he was just overwhelmingly sad. But everyone else was thrilled, and they were all vying for the death penalty. How are you just not, like, screaming? Later at his sentencing trial, Chris read a statement. He said he was not the monster he'd been made out to be, and he asked the judge to spare his life. Carol Dodge was there, and she couldn't take it. She stormed out of the courtroom and into the hallway, which for some reason was being videotaped because there's footage of this whole interaction. She's so upset, she's saying, how dare he ask the judge to spare his life when Angie begged him for hers, and it is so sad to see how much pain she's in. Poor Mama Carol. I know. In the end, Chris did not get the death penalty. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 30 years served for the murder and 10 for the rape. I'm not entirely sure if those were to be served concurrently or consecutively. Angie's family was upset at the sentence. They wanted, at the very least, life without parole. And they were angry that he would get out one day when Angie would never be able to come back. Sure. But Carol wasn't satisfied for more reasons. 
she was not happy that the actual killer hadn't been identified, the one who'd left his DNA at the scene, even though he was just found guilty of first-degree murder. That does not make sense to me. (laughs) But nothing happened. No new evidence. So she decides to start investigating the case herself. Oh, Carol. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. In the 2020 episode, they did this montage of a bunch of different people describing Carol, like one right after the other. And the word they all used was formidable. (gasps) Did you just remember? remember. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I'm here for this. They said she was a force of nature. I can't believe it took you that long to remember this case. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm here now. 50 minutes in. I'm here. Carol went to the police station every day. Yeah, she did. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Asking detectives what they were going to do that day to solve this case. She started going out to the streets and talking to people. She got the file on Angie's murder and she read all the documents over and over, all the different reports. She started surveilling people, questioning drug dealers. Someone even pulled a gun on her once. She's not scared. But she wouldn't give up. She did that for 20 years. 20 years. Would you do that for me? Be honest. Right now on the spot. No, I I would have moved on. (laughs) If you were murdered and and I didn't think it was solved, I don't think I would hit the streets, but I would be... (laughs) You did the mic, though. You did the the mic. mic. I'd hit the mic. You wouldn't hit the streets. I love that. I would 100% start a podcast for you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's good. And then the podcast would blow up. Let me practice. Code MOGAB for 20% off of your HelloFresh meal. <laughs> That's awful. At one point. <laughs> 10% off at Chelsea's. A portion of the proceeds will go to the Save MOGAB Fund. Or Justice for MOGAB Fund. <laughs> yeah, save. She gone. She died. She gone. Oh, that would be so sad. At one point, Carol started following Jeremy around, basically harassing him letting him know she knew he was involved and he wasn't going to get away with it. And Jeremy said it was just so sad to see someone in that much pain. Jack, Angie's father, had a mental collapse after Angie's death and he died in 2004. Carol said he died of a broken heart. Oh, me too right now. (laughs) I know. By 2008, so 12 years after the murder, Carol was still pushing, still determined, She decided she was going to study all 60 hours of Chris's interrogation, including nine separate interviews and hours upon hours of polygraph sessions, at least five polygraph sessions. She was convinced that she would notice something the cops didn't see, and she did. What she noticed was how little Chris actually knew about the crime, and it became so obvious to her that Chris hadn't been there. She couldn't explain why he'd said he'd been there, but she had serious doubts about the confession. She hadn't listened to our episode on the Austin Yogurt Shop murders where we talk about all the reasons that people falsely confess. Yeah, which like, you know, shame on her for that. I know. Yeah. (laughs) She tracked down his defense lawyer, John Thomas, and she told him to watch the interrogation tapes because she thought he was innocent. And maybe he hadn't, which blows my mind (laughs) as his attorney. I totally agree. One of the claims law enforcement made was that Chris volunteered all the statements that indicated he knew about the rape and murder. But the tapes showed that it was actually the police that revealed all the details of the crime. This is an actual example from the interrogation tapes. Police. Where did she live? Chris. 
Did she live around the corner? Police. No, the middle of the block. Police. Which room was she killed in? Chris, the living room. Police. No, Chris, she was killed in the bedroom. Okay, stop right there. (laughs) That's not how any of this is supposed to work. I know. Answer for your crimes, Idaho police. Yes. Detectives testified at trial saying that they had evidence that Chris was lying to them and that he always knew where Angie lived. But the tapes showed that's clearly a lie. He had no idea. At least two of the detectives involved claim they never gave Chris any information. He volunteered all the incriminating details he gave. And I'm like, false. Y'all know these are recorded, right? Y'all know these (laughs) interviews are recorded. (laughs) I don't know how that's a reoccurring theme. (laughs) They got the receipts. Yeah. You've been here. I feel like that's (laughs) day one of training. Yes. I know that. And I've never been to the police academy. In 2013, Carol got in touch with Stephen Drizen, one of the nation's leading experts in false confessions who's with the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern's Law School, which I didn't know was a thing, and now I really want to work there. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Drizen was familiar with Chris's case. He'd been communicating with his legal team since the year before, and after talking with Carol, he agreed to come on the case pro bono. Drizzen said it was the first time he'd ever gotten a call from the mother of the victim saying she thinks the guy in prison for killing her daughter is innocent. Ugh, Carol. I know. Drizzen also recruited the Innocence Project to jump on board. And this is exactly the kind of case the Innocence Project takes on, the kind with DNA evidence. Drizzen reviewed Chris's confession and he created a, a report that would be used for Chris's appeals. And his report was like, This is a textbook coerced confession. We got the deceit and the pressure from law enforcement. We got the cops supplying the details to give his statement some credibility. And we got threats upon threats. One example he used was that during one of the five polygraph sessions Chris had, the polygrapher suggested to Chris that he could get the gas chamber for this crime. These are the kind of threats that lead to false confessions. Jesus. All of the tactics used were legal, but they took it too far. In Drizzen's opinion, the polygrapher wasn't there to test the accuracy of Chris's stories. He was there to tell him that he failed the test to get Chris to change his story to match their evolving theory of this murder, that Ben Hobbs killed Angie and that Chris Tapp somehow participated in the crime. Drizzen said that with these kinds of interrogation techniques, anyone can find themselves confessing to a crime they didn't commit. This could happen to anybody. Just terrifying. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. 
Subject here available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Chris said he thought he was doing the right thing. He was trying to answer the police's questions to be helpful. He thought if he helped them solve the case, he'd be a hero. Instead, he's a convicted murderer. Right. By 2015, nearly 20 years after Angie's murder, all of the old guard had pretty much retired. And the police, as well as the prosecutor's office, were filled with new people. The prosecutor's office hired an independent investigator to look into Chris's conviction, and they saw what Carol had seen nearly a decade earlier, that all of the information Chris gave about the crime had been provided to him by law enforcement. He was also concerned with the statements made by the polygrapher during the examination that he said Yeah, me too. Yeah, that he said were coercive. But he said that Chris's statements to police were very close to statements made to Destiny Osborne that she testified to at trial. And so his conclusion was that Chris was present when Angie was attacked, but he had doubts about his confession of his involvement in the crime. Do we know more about Destiny and like where she got that? I'm not thinking that they were talking about this thing that they didn't do at a party. We do. And we'll get into that in three paragraphs. Three sentences. Three paragraphs. In May 2016, Chris's lawyers submitted a motion for post-conviction relief, citing all the coercion and deception found in the tapes. Three of the seven polygraph tapes also showed coercion and deception that had been withheld from Chris's legal team. The motion also pointed out that Chris's confession did not fit the evidence. He said the crime took place at 1 a.m., but the evidence showed it had taken place much later. Also, like, the DNA (laughs) (laughs) didn't match his confession. (laughs) But the motion would never be ruled on. In March of 2017, Chris's lawyers reached an agreement with the prosecutor's office, and his rape conviction was completely vacated for obvious reasons. It's insane he was ever convicted (sighs) of the rape in the first place. And then they reduced the sentence for his murder conviction to time served, which at this point was just over 20 years. So he'd be released from prison, but he would still be a convicted murderer. 
And he served 20 20 years. years. Like, what? Yeah. Chris's time in prison was really tough on him. He was very angry for a long time. And he said it changes who you are. The violence and the stuff that you see while you're in there, it makes you something you're not. You lose yourself. And it was especially hard for Chris, who was in there for something he didn't do. Yeah. When Chris walked out of prison, Carol was there holding Shut his hand. Shut up. Holding his I hand. That, but. Happy he'd be released. Also that year, Destiny Osborne recanted her testimony. Oh, I knew it. She said that Idaho Falls Police Department officers told her what to say and told her that she had suppressed memories through her drug use. So Destiny was doing drugs. Angie was not. Correct. But Chris out of prison wasn't the end. Carol wanted the right person in prison so that Chris would be fully exonerated. Yeah, I guess we still don't know who actually did it. Right. And being a convicted murderer would make it difficult on Chris to get a job. And it also meant the state wouldn't be held accountable for the way they'd railroaded him. Well, Chris shouldn't have to get a job. Can I just say? Chris should (laughs) should never have to work a day in his life. I totally agree. (laughs) Right. I totally agree. Unless he would like to go work at the Waffle House for fun. But other than that, he should be paid. If you spend over two decades in prison for something you didn't do, you should be able to enjoy every single minute of the rest of your life. That's what I said. Work at the Waffle House for fun. Raise your hand if you think working at the Waffle House would be fun. (laughs) One person out there. (laughs) It's me. Carol knew that the DNA evidence proved it was one person that committed this crime. And she was determined to find that one person. Just one. Just one. New investigators were on the case and ready to take a fresh look at the crime. Captain Bill Squires took over the case and saw that there was absolutely nothing to follow up on and nowhere to take it. What? They had no leads. They still had no leads. But they knew that genetic genealogy had made great strides since the 90s, and more and more can be determined of a killer just based on their DNA. So they reached out to a technology company that analyzes DNA for police called Parabon Nanolabs, and a woman named Cece Moore joined the team investigating Angie's murder. And apparently Cece Moore is like the celebrity genetic genealogist. Oh. That's a thing. (laughs) Cece, got it. Cece met up with Carol, and the more she got to know her, the more she knew she had to solve this puzzle for her. She could not give up. The one thing really working for the case is that the evidence had all been preserved by police, so they still had the DNA. That is shocking news, though. I know. Though it had degraded over the years. Cece said as science progresses, a DNA sample that was uninterpretable a few years ago can become clear as day. She was hoping that this was the case. Cece wanted to do kinship analysis DNA, which is very, very controversial. In fact, around 2014, the Idaho Falls Police Department had accused a filmmaker from New Orleans of killing Angie Dodge based on the fact that this filmmaker's father had submitted DNA to a lab that had then been bought out by Ancestry.com. Yeah. Can we just on I'm going to go on record here (laughs) and just say that 23andMe and Ancestry.com. We just need to put those to bed. I mean, Do other you than need solving to for murder, dig up every relative that you've never heard of. Uh, my family seems to think so, and then invite <laughs> them to things. And I truly, I could do without. I can no see offense, how, like, maybe so. if you were adopted or something like that, you didn't know your family, you'd want to use it. But 
I'm just yeah, saying. We I got people coming no out interest. the woodwork. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The filmmaker that they were accusing had also traveled through Idaho Falls on multiple occasions, and his films were pretty dark and macabre, so he was suspected. But he didn't do it. And there are a lot of critics to this method that say that using Ancestry.com's database was unethical and a breach of privacy since the father had submitted his DNA for recreational or religious purposes and not to be a part of some DNA database for police. And therefore, it should not be grounds to accuse members of his family of committing a murder. But Cece was sure that kinship analysis was the way that this case was going to be solved. In October of 2017, they got permission to do the kinship analysis. And initially, the results were disappointing. They didn't get very good matches. Cece said working with degraded DNA is like trying to put a puzzle together when a third of the pieces are missing. Genetic genealogy had never been done with DNA this degraded, but Cece was determined to figure out a way. She wanted to do everything she could to get Carol the answers she'd looked for for decades. Carol was worried that she wouldn't live to see the results. So Cece went back to the drawing board. She knew that if she could find a common ancestor, she could look forward to find the descendants that would be the right age, which would narrow down the suspect pool. She started building family trees, looking for connections that would narrow her search. She used obituaries, marriage announcements, engagement announcements, birth announcements, whatever she could. And she finally figured out that the suspect had to be a descendant of a son of a couple named Cleo and Clarence. But they had five sons. Love those names. I don't know how you know. get to that. Like, I don't know how you, whatever, I know down to a family. It's just crazy to me. I agree. It had to be someone that was both old enough and young enough in 1996. So both their sons and grandsons were included. Okay. And all of that brought the pool down to six males. Five of them lived a thousand miles away. One of them lived in Idaho. Hmm. So she gave the police the information. But now they had to take over and they had to track down the suspects. They couldn't just go out and arrest the guy. They had to build their case. They started with the one guy that lived in Idaho. He seemed like the best place to start. Yeah, probably. The most likely suspect. At least cost effective. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He was about two and a half hours away in a rural area. He worked in a factory. He was a family man. He didn't really seem like the type, but you can't always tell who's capable of that kind of violence. Yeah, murder doesn't have a type. Right. They started surveilling him, hoping he'd throw a tissue at his truck window or something and just make it easy on everyone. Cigarette butt. A Mountain Dew can. That's what I picture. Just <laughs> trashy as all get out. But it was hard to surveil him because he lived in a rural community. They couldn't just sit outside his house without being super obvious. It was like the only <laughs> house around. But they ended up being able to get DNA from both the suspect and his son. They ran the DNA, and the results shocked them all. Not only was this suspect eliminated, it eliminated all six suspects that Cece had narrowed it down to. I know I've heard this before, but I'm confused. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It seemed like a dead end, but both Cece and Carol wanted Chris exonerated. And the only way that would happen is if there was new, clear, and compelling evidence of his innocence. Basically, they had to solve this murder to clear him. Yeah, come on, Cece. They wanted to find the person that had done this, and Cece wouldn't give up. The stakes were too high. So Cece went back to her analysis. She was certain the suspect had to be a descendant of Clarence and Cleo Ussery. 
So Cece went up and down that tree, trying to figure out where she'd gone wrong. And she found it. One of the grandsons had an early marriage. His wife was only 16 when they'd gotten married. And Cece originally hadn't found any children in that marriage. But when she went back, she found an obituary and found they Hmm. did have a son. But he was using the stepfather's last name, so she hadn't caught it the first time. And in 1996, that son was living in Idaho Falls. (gasps) Across the street. He was across the street, wasn't he? (laughs) Oh, my. Excuse me while I clear this table. (laughs) You mean to tell me we took hundreds of DNA? (laughs) Hundreds of DNA samples? And we didn't ask the neighbors for a cup of milk and for them to pee in a cup or whatever. I don't know. DNA's not in urine. Whatever. For a swab on the blood cheek. Sample. Cotton swab yeah. on the cheek. <laughs> hey, can I borrow some sugar milk in your inside cells of your mouth? <laughs> I'm pissed. On May 1st, 2019, Cece delivered her report to police. They listened to her on the edge of their seat, worried the whole time she gave this report that it was going to end with her saying she couldn't find anything. But that's not what she said. She said, "How is she giving the report? Is it like over a PowerPoint Zoom. deck?" Yeah, and then yes, yeah, she has a PowerPoint. <laughs> it was over Zoom. She has a PowerPoint. She's showing them that's basically walking them through how she did it, how she reached this conclusion, so that they can see she didn't just like. I wouldn't have that type of self control if it's on like slide seven, you know, and you're like you've been waiting years. Like I'm getting to slide seven quickly. I know. <laughs> And it's probably more like on slide 57. Yeah. Because <laughs> of how complicated all of this is. And they're probably like, I don't understand any of this. Let's get to the part I care about. Yeah, we got him. We don't. <laughs> she has like slide transitions. You know, like the words come in. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> She's got to hit it 14 times. Yeah. <laughs> the bullets come in one at a time. They're pissed. Okay. What was on slide 57? <laughs> Slide 57 was just big giant letters. We've got him. Wait, for real? And then his picture on slide 58. No. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) But she was positive this time that it was the right guy. The investigators were really emotional at the news. After almost like basically no leads for 24 years, to get this news was incredible. But they weren't taking it for granted. They had to confirm this information. The suspect's name was Brian Drips. He was 30 at the time of the crime, and he'd been going through a divorce with a child being born. He only had a couple of misdemeanors on his record, but he was in Idaho Falls at the time. In fact, he lived across the street from Angie's house. I'm pissed off again. (laughs) Detectives set up surveillance on Brian's house. They had to find his work, his daily activities, his schedule, so they could try and get his DNA. He was a smoker, so they were hoping he'd throw a cigarette butt out of his truck window while they were tailing him. They said cigarette butts are like DNA traps. They're perfect for collecting a sample. At one point, Brian did throw a cigarette butt out of his window, but police weren't able to differentiate his from the many other butts in the same spot. But then, on May 10th, 2019, they finally got one, a cigarette butt. They were so excited, but also terrified at being disappointed again. So they called Cece, they sent the cigarette butt in for testing, and this time... It was a match. They got him. Brian L. Drips' DNA matched the DNA that had been left at Angie's crime scene. This is the guy they'd been looking for for 24 years. It was an unbelievable feeling. They'd gotten to know his schedule so well that finding him was a breeze. 
Yeah, there's like three places he could go. Right. They caught up to him in a bank parking lot, and the detectives asked him if he'd be willing to voluntarily come down to Caldwell PD. He agreed to go, but he wanted to drive his own truck. A detective got in his truck with him, and then they followed him to his home. And when he got home, he hugged his mom and let his dog out, and then went with the detectives to the station for an interview. Oh, his poor dog. I know. The interview lasted five and a half hours. He denied any involvement right away, and detectives were like, dude, we have your DNA. But he still wouldn't admit to anything. Because they can lie about that, remember? That's true. They can. But you know they're not when... I mean, he knows they're not. Right. (laughs) But yes. At one point, he asked for a smoke break, and when he came back, his shoulders were slumped a little, and finally, he admitted it. He said, I did it. I raped her. And apparently... I killed her. Apparently? Yeah. He would use that kind of distancing language every single time he admitted to killing her. He said he'd gone over there with the intention to rape Angie, but not kill her. They asked him if anyone else was involved, and he said no. Finally, the nightmare was over. Carol finally got the answers she'd been seeking for so long. But it was bittersweet, because if police hadn't focused so hard on Ben Hobbs and Chris Tapp in the first place, they may have been able to identify Brian Drips as the assailant long ago. Yeah, like if they would have walked across the <laughs> damn street. Yeah, <laughs> like the guy across the street. Brian Drips was charged with the murder and rape of Angie Dodge. Can you imagine? This is also what I didn't think about until you said it now. Is like when this happened, there's, I'm sure, tons of cop cars and crime scene tape and all this stuff. And Homeboy's like watching from across the street. Like there was obviously a conversation of like, Either his mom or at the time he was going through a divorce. I don't know if he was mm-hmm. still living with his wife or whatever. And it's like, hey, what do you think's happening across the street? Mm, I don't know. Like, right. he watched the whole thing unravel and watched them put someone else away. Right. Ugh. Yeah. This guy's an asshole. On May 16th, 2019, police announced the arrest of 53-year-old Brian Drips. But there was a huge problem. At the time that the Idaho Falls police announced Brian Drip's arrest, you know, for the murder of Angie Dodge, Chris Tapp was still convicted of that murder. So how does that work? You have two people convicted for the same crime? Well, yeah, you exonerate the one that didn't do it. That's how that works. (laughs) But it takes time because our legal system is like, I mean, you want to talk about slow. It's slower than the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) Chris was there at the press conference when Brian's arrest was announced. And he said he was overwhelmed, but he felt vindicated. And then someone at the press conference, I'm not sure if it was a reporter or if it was like a supporter of his or who it was, but someone stood up at this press conference and asked the detective that's giving the announcement, asked if they're planning on giving Chris an apology or anything. You know, they're like, hey, Chris is convicted of this murder. He's sitting right here and you're announcing that this other guy has (laughs) been charged with it. Are you going to say sorry or like do anything about that? And this detective basically said that, yes, but that was for another day. I hope it's the next day. It was two months later. Two months. Yep. On July 17th, 2019, Chris Tapp was finally exonerated. The rape conviction and murder conviction were dismissed on the basis of actual innocence. I wonder how that happens two months later. Like, do you get something in the mail? Is it an email? That maybe accidentally goes to your Gmail promotions folder. Like, how do you get <laughs> no, the it was notice? A, a hearing, like- a hearing, and a judge says your conviction has been overturned. And at this hearing, his whole team 
was wearing t-shirts that said innocent on the front. And on the back, it said, we told you so. (laughs) (laughs) We have those in the merch store. I'll take one of those. (laughs) I know. So cute. I love it. On February 9th, 2021, when Adnan gets released, I will make those shirts. (laughs) (laughs) Or Richard Glossop. On February 9th, 2021, so five months ago from this recording, Brian Drip had his plea hearing where he pled guilty. He said he was pretty high on cocaine and alcohol, and he went over to Angie's with a pocket knife. He said, I didn't mean to murder her, but I guess that's what happened. Boo. Yeah. Carol gave a victim impact statement at the sentencing hearing because she's a badass. And she said, you have shattered our family. There is no way to pick up the pieces ever again. You, Brian Drips, deserve eternal hell. Co-signed. Drips got a sentence of 20 to life, which, you know, lighter than Chris's sentence. I was just trying to do that in my head. I was trying to figure out, wait. Uh, Yeah, he got 30 years for murder and 10 years for rape. And Drips got a sentence of 20 to life, but he's in such poor health that it will likely mean he will die in prison, as he should. And it makes me so mad that he got a lighter sentence than Chris. I mean, 20 years, that's how much Chris spent in prison wrongfully. And that's what he gets yeah, 20 to life. Yeah, I don't understand how that happens. Were they like, well, just in case we mess this one up again? Well, they, ha- they right, but they had DNA evidence and he confessed, which I get, so did Chris, but Chris didn't confess to killing her or raping her, and that's what he was charged with. Right. He confessed to holding her down, which would be an accessory. Just don't understand so much of this. It doesn't make sense. Drip said he was sorry and he showed remorse, but he hadn't been sorry enough for 23 years to come forward knowing that someone else was serving a sentence for a crime he committed. Here's the thing. This is not okay, ever not okay. It's one thing to not come forward when they just don't know who did it and there's Mm -hmm. no one being held accountable. Mm -hmm. But when you see someone's like wasting their life Mm -hmm. in prison for something you did, like that's maybe when you should come forward, you know? But they probably think, oh, thank God, somebody else is going to, you know? Like he was living his life. I'm sure there were Mm -hmm. days he didn't even think about it. Like he's just going to work. Moved on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This case begins and ends with Carol Dodge. Hell yeah, it does. Without Carol, Angie's murder would have gone off into the annals of boxes somewhere. Chris might have never gotten out of prison, and he definitely would not have been exonerated. It's amazing what she was able to do because she refused to give up, because she had questions and she noticed things and she stood up. Carol's quest for justice gives us hope of what human beings are capable of. Do you ever hear things like that and you think, you're such a piece of shit? (laughs) Yeah, literally, I was just like, and I cannot go convince myself to go to the gym. Like, (laughs) I cannot Uh seem to be bothered. And here's Carol. You're like, Carol didn't give up. And I'm like, like, I just talked myself out of 15 minutes on the elliptical. What are human beings capable of? Well, I'm sitting on the couch when I should be doing my Pilates. Be like Carol, everybody. BLC. Hashtag BLC. Hashtag BLC. Chris Tapp filed a lawsuit against the city of Idaho Falls and several officers involved in this case. His lawsuit says that he was subject to some of the worst police misconduct in history, which resulted in his wrongful conviction. They also reiterate that no physical evidence tied Chris to the crime scene, and they say that officers on the case coordinated to wrongfully convict Chris of murder 
through abusive interrogations and sham polygraphs. In a news release, Chris gave this statement. Because of what the Idaho Falls police did to me, I lost the opportunity to raise a family, pursue a career, and to share in the most basic freedoms that we all live for. I continue to live every day with the nightmare of the 22 years the Idaho Falls police stole from me. And I think uh-huh. I, I kind of, like the first time I heard this, 20 years is a tragedy for anybody. But I think I forget what happens in those 20 years, you know, your 20s and 30s. Like, mm-hmm. that's when you're setting up your life, you know? Yeah, career, family, yeah. Right. And he lost out on all of that. But something good actually came out of this whole thing. I mean, you know, it's a, a silver lining, you could say. Because of this case, as of March 5th, 2021, Idaho's wrongfully convicted can now get compensated for the time they spent behind bars for crimes they did not commit. Up until then, Idaho was one of the few states left that did not compensate for wrongful convictions. I need you to list all those states right now. I need you to put them on blast. Answer for your crimes right now. Okay? Just, I mean, I want you to blast them. Okay. Answer for your crimes. Here they go. Here we go. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Delaware. I thought you were about to sing the whole song. I was like, (laughs) oh, no. Just the first three. Alaska, Arizona. Arkansas, Delaware, Georgia, Kentucky, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Wyoming. (laughs) All y'all, come on. I'm actually surprised it wasn't just all of the Deep South, that it was kind of scattered. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very scattered. I mean, you got Delaware in there. You got Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. All right. I'm in Kentucky. I can see what I can do about that. If you have these laws, maybe, maybe you'll think twice before just trying to convict someone to further your own career, say. You know, prosecutors get penalized for losing cases. I don't know. I can't get past the way you say that word. Correctly? Yeah, probably, but I'm (laughs) not here for that. (laughs) It's better than Dalmatian, but... Ooh. Correct me if I'm wrong, people out there. This is what I have heard from other, you know, in other places that prosecutors, if they lose enough cases, they'll lose their job. So it's really in their best personal interest to win the case at any cost, even when there's no evidence. And if they're good enough, they can do that. I mean, obviously. Yeah. It makes me think of the one that. I don't remember what case it was, but it was like she'd never lost a death penalty case or something. You're like, that's great if they're all guilty or no. I don't know what it was, but yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. She'd never lost a murder conviction or whatever. That's what it was. And then loved talking about how many people she'd sent to the death penalty. Yeah. I don't even remember who that was. I just remember being disgusted. (laughs) Disgusted. I have forgotten that person. I forgot that you existed. Oh, what a good song. I had a dream I was in a Taylor Swift music video the other night. (laughs) <laughs> it was so good it was so good uh, oh it was so good i looked so good okay so the idaho wrongful conviction act was signed into law after a couple of senators worked alongside chris tapp to bring the bill to congress the governor said this is a good bill this is the right thing to do as our justice process morphs over the years unfortunately there's been people wrongfully convicted that are long gone now this proposal this legislation 
It's just one of those things that is good public policy, which, yeah, Governor, this should have been done a long time ago before 2021, Mm. but glad that it's happened now. The senators involved said it's for Chris Tapp, but it's also for anybody else who's in the same situation. This is the way the state can show some restitution that we're sorry and that we can provide some compensation for those who have been done wrong by the system. Yeah, so my man doesn't have to go scan groceries at Kroger or whatever. Right. You know? With the passing of the act, exonerees will receive a fixed sum of $62,000 for each year of wrongful imprisonment or $75,000 for each year they were wrongfully on death row. Which one was he? He wasn't on death row, right? He was not. No, he was not. He was not given the death penalty. So he'll get $62,000 a year, but he's also suing them. Like there's also a lawsuit. So he'll get money from that too. At least he should. So he should be set. Yeah. There have been six other potential exonerees who've been identified in Idaho that meet this criteria, and there are an additional four people who could meet the standards after their legal processes continue. And this case reminds me so much of Brooke Baker's case. You know, there was Mm -hmm. DNA there too, but they couldn't find the guy for so long, not until he struck again. I mean, there was only two years, but when he struck again, I mean, this guy... Brian Drips managed to go 20 years without committing another crime and getting his DNA on file, you know. Mm -hmm. But this case just kind of shows you what could have happened if the police in the Brooke Baker case were under more pressure to solve it and decided to cut some corners to do so. In Unrelated, it makes me think about (laughs) Kelly Peters and they were running DNA (laughs) on little baggies. Like... (laughs) I just, the disparity is crazy to me. (sighs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happens when you have an overfunded police department with nothing better to do. Yeah. (laughs) That's how you get the Kelly Peters story. That's the story of the murder of Angie Dodge. Well, thank goodness for carols and things like the Innocence Project, which I think we should share a little bit about. Yes. So the Innocence Project, we have talked about them before, but... If you are unfamiliar or you, like, skipped our first episode or something. You should go back and listen to it. I think it was our first episode. Yeah, even though MoGab did record through her uh, AirPods. (laughs) Yes, that did happen. I'm thinking for our 100th episode, we'll redo that episode. Yeah, I want to. Okay, so a little bit about the Innocence Project. And this is from innocenceproject.org. I want to work there. I know. They were founded in 1992. Their mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for that unjust imprisonment. There have been 375 people in the United States that have been exonerated by DNA testing, including 21 who were on death row. I can't get over that that's not even all. Like, that that number is so big and it's not even all of them. Like, no, they're, I think they estimate that like 1% of the people in prison are actually innocent. And that might not sound like a lot, but you're talking like 10,000 people. You yeah. know, I mean, it's a huge number of people. And not all of them are, are in there for life, you know, with life sentences. But I can't believe 20 on death, 21 on death row. Like those people could die. That's 21 could people that would have died. Yeah. For something they didn't do. Mm. For something they didn't do. Hey, peeps and creeps, thanks so much for listening. It really means the world to us. We would also love for you to follow us on social media at Creepers Pod or join the Facebook discussion group. And of course, sign up for our Patreon, which we will launch in just a couple weeks when that drops. 
You can also email us any feedback, case suggestions, or whatever weird things you found out from Ancestry.com or 23andMe at creeperspod at gmail. Also, a huge thanks to everyone who's left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just this morning, I woke up, checked our reviews. We had three awesome new reviews. I screenshot all so of them, good. sent them to Mocha. We're very excited. Thank you so much. They meant so much to us, and they help us out in a really big way. So if you liked this episode, we'd love it if you take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. Audible does reviews. And I think there are a few other apps that do reviews too. And be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops, where I'll tell MoGab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps. 